So I'm, I'm finishing up a series. I'm not sure if this is the last one. I may have one or two more. Uh, but the series is called, uh, it's Classic Sermon Series. And today's message was originally preached by a gentleman by the name of Leonard Ravenhill. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of Leonard Ravenhill? Keep him up. One, two, three. Okay, so three people have ever heard of this guy. That's fantastic. I hope you'll go back and listen to what he's got online. He was born in 1907. He died in 1994. He is from Yorkshire, England. He moved here in 1950 because he believed God called him to come here. And uh, he was an evangelist. He was passionate about calling the church back to being more like the first century church. You know, the, the more I look at these guys and listen to these guys, the more I realize that there's truly nothing new under the sun. We struggle with the same things the church has always struggled with. We, we struggle with the same, and we wrestle with the same doctrine the church has always wrestled with. Uh, people just haven't changed since the beginning of time. Circumstances change some, but at the end of the day, humans are humans are humans. And the church has always been the church and has always wrestled with the same general things. But Leonard Ravenhill um, was a very powerful preacher. But here's what I want you to catch out of this. And this actually is... The, the whole, not the whole, but it, it, it's assumed or it's seen in the overall text of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can turn there if you want. That's where we're going to be, 1 Corinthians 3. And so, um, essentially, Leonard Ravenhill is unknown to this group. But how many of you have ever heard of David Wilkerson? How many of you ever heard of Keith Green? Let me uh, make sure I get him right. How many of you have ever heard of... Um, well, goodness. Oh, yeah. Ravi Zacharias. Right? What about Tommy Tenney? What about uh, Michael Brown? How about Charles Stanley? All of these guys' ministries were greatly influenced by Leonard Ravenhill. See, you don't even know who Leonard is. But you don't need to. As Count Zinzendorf said, one of my favorite quotes, Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And as Paul says, look, some water, some plant, but it's God who gives the increase. The message title today is this, the real cost of discipleship. Now, by putting the word real before cost, we're indicating, we're, we're signaling that there is a assumed cost or a fake cost or a, a, a public cost, but there is a real cost. It's like when you go to buy a car, the price they give you is not always the cost, Right? You go and they go, hey, you can have the car for this much money. Super, that's right in my budget. And then when you, you, you go to, the, 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 to pay for it and it's $5,000 more. Wait a minute, what happened? Well, you got title taxes and you got fees and you got county taxes. So the real cost is the actual cost of what it takes to be a disciple. And what God is calling you to and me to is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Christ, and not just a not just a disciple in name only, not just a not just a Christian, but a genuine first century Jesus loving, Jesus following disciple of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, there's a quote that is is given to a guy by the name of D. L. Moody. Y'all know who D. L. Moody is. D. L. Moody is said to have said this, but it actually isn't original with him. Another guy, an old preacher by the name of um, oh, darn. Uh, Henry uh, Varley. 
Henry Varley was with D.L. Moody and a couple of other, of other young guys. They were in a hayfield praying for God to move mightily amongst them. And Henry doesn't even remember saying this, but he said this statement. He said, the world is yet to see what God could do with one person fully committed to him or fully consecrated to him. You ever heard that statement before? Most people say D.L. Moody said it. It wasn't D.L. Moody. It was this unknown preacher called Henry Varley. But D.L. Moody heard that and it stuck in his heart. Later that day or later that night, D.L. Moody was, was, was in, a, in a, a church service. I believe it was a revival service. And that, that quote just kept echoing through his heart and through his head. And it was, it was peculiar to him because D.L. Moody was uneducated. He did not have status. He was a shoe salesman. That's what he did. Now, back in those days, being a shoe salesman was not like being a shoe salesman today, I suppose. I mean, he, he, he was just an ordinary, regular, basic guy. But in that service, he said to himself and he said to the Lord, Lord, by the grace of God, if you've yet to see anyone fully committed to you and the world has yet to see what, the world, what, what you could do with someone fully committed to you, by your grace, I will be that man. Now, do you know what happened with D.L. Moody? This uneducated shoe salesman became a powerful evangelist who led hundreds upon thousands to faith in Jesus Christ. He started a Bible college, which became a major university, which became a seminary, our own saga. You know Saga. He came from Moody. He came to go to school to Moody. And so all of this influence, and here's what I want you to see. All this school came from the heart of this man who was a shoe salesman who got the passion for the gospel that came from this unknown preacher in a hayfield. Do you see how God works? Listen, folks, God is not looking for superstars. He's not looking for heroes. He's not looking for, for mightiness. He's looking for obedience. He's looking for one Person. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord range to and fro. They range throughout the earth seeking to strengthen those whose hearts are steadfast upon Him. Those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. Real disciples. And so Leonard Ravenhill had an issue with that statement in that he says, I'm not so sure the world has yet to see that. And I think he's right. I think history has shown us few but some whose hearts were fully committed to the gospel. And there's none greater than the Apostle Paul. Let me read the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. By the way, if you go back and listen to the original recording, I, I, I love saying this because I just really want to remind you that if you think I preach long, well, you should have been alive back in the 50s. This dude, this sermon is an hour and a half long. And what's even, I won't do that. And what's even cooler is he read the text and he had a 45-minute introduction. He has a 45-minute introduction, then he gets to the text. And I thought to myself, wow, that's good. That's really good. So 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you were still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? 
And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth here. And he's saying to them, You are mere babies and you should be adults. You are children and you should be mature. I'm giving you milk and I should be giving you meat. And he's pleading with them and he's begging them to step into the discipleship role that God has called them to to step into. But let's first remember who Paul was. Paul, we first come about, or come to understand him, was actually Saul. And if you go back in the book of Acts, you can read the story of Saul. Saul was a great persecutor of Christians. In fact, Saul made it his sole passion and purpose in life to kill Christians. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, which means he was in the religious leadership. In fact, he would have been the best high priest. He would have been the most successful, most influential, no doubt, of all the high priests. Had Paul stayed along the track that he was going, all of Judaism would be looking back to Paul and quoting him as the one to whom they they, they get their instructions. He would have been the best Bible teacher. He would have been the best, uh, uh, the, the, the best one to explain the, the Jewish law. In, in all of his history, in all of his education, he was at the top of his class. In terms of zeal, there was nobody more zealous. There was nobody that had more drive. There was nobody that was more of an entrepreneur. There was nobody that had more class. There was nobody that had more unction. And yet, We find Paul on the road to Damascus with letters in his hands. And those letters said, Christians should be arrested, tried, and murdered. Because they are an affront to the state and they are an affront to the Jews. His sole purpose was to condemn and to execute those who follow Jesus. And yet on his way to Damascus... He had an encounter with God Himself. And if you follow the story, this light flashed before Him and He was blinded. Insert a song there. And and as He was blinded, it, it, it caused Him such disorientation that He had to have somebody move Him to a room so He could try to figure out what was going on. And He heard this voice and the voice said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, who who are you, Lord? Persecute who? Well, wait, is this God? I am your choicest servant. I mean, look what I'm doing for you. I am defending the law. I am keeping the the Jewish law, and 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 I'm making sure that your chosen people don't fall for this Christianity stuff. And fortunately, there was one believer back in the city who was listening to God. Because at the same time that God was confronting Saul with who he was, there was this man by the name of Ananias who heard God's call. 
And God said to Ananias, Ananias, I want you to go down to the house on Straight Street. And when you get there, Saul... Whoa, time out, Jesus. <laughs> now, if I were Ananias, I'd have been saying, uh, can I get a sign? Um, can, can we try a fleece? Can, can, I maybe, can I maybe flip a coin? Because do you know, God, that, that Ananias... or that, Do you know that, that Saul's a murderer? And it's almost like God is going, uh, <clears throat> hello, I'm God. Yeah, but, but do you understand, in fact, there was such fear in the Christian community over what Saul was doing that, that when the rest of the believers in the city heard that, that Saul was, was confronted by God, they all said, we can't go, it's a trick, it's a trap. There's no way we're going over there. Thankfully, Ananias knew God enough to know his voice. And Ananias goes to Saul's room and explains the gospel and scales fall off of Paul's eyes. It's all here in Acts. And when they fall off his eyes, he was a new creation. He was changed. And what you have is the most dramatic change from a murderer and an executor and a, and a persecutor into the one who was the greatest champion for the gospel that we've ever seen or heard. He wrote over half of the New Testament, depending on how many you give to him. I believe it's 14 books if you give him Hebrews. And so, so we understand God because of what God did through this one man. And so, has the world ever seen one whose heart is fully committed to him? I think if we have, it's in Paul. And so I want you to see what his life stood for. And I want you to see what his life meant. In, in Galatians 2.20, Paul sums it all up. Now remember, I gave you his pedigree, right? He was intellectually brilliant. You don't get to that high priest position without being brilliant. He was, he was emotionally and he was um, um, uh, 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 on a stage. He was breathtaking. He could command a crowd. He had abilities that were honed and sharpened. And here's what he says in Galatians 2.20 of himself. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And therefore, I no longer live, but Christ Jesus lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. He said of himself, I am crucified with Christ. Now, I mentioned last week, but there's this song. It's an old hymn. It goes like this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. That's a sweet song, right? But listen to what it's saying. When I survey the wondrous cross. None of us have any idea what the cross was like. All that we know, we know because we've read reports and we've heard preachers talk and we've watched uh, Mel Gibson do a movie on the Passion of the Christ. And so that's in our mind what the cross is like. When you survey something, you don't just take a passing glance. You don't just, uh, just have, a, have a quick view and then move on. To survey something is a technical term. You take an instrument of measurement and you get a point of reference and you take that measurement tool and you, you get... Specific, precise measurements. When I did the, the building, in the, or when I did the, started the renovation in the back of my house, 
You know what I had to start? I had to start with a survey. These guys drove up in a truck and they set up their gear and they went from mark to mark to mark. Why? Because they wanted to know what the law said belonged to me. Because I could only build on my land and there had to be certain, certain space between my land and my neighbor's land. And so it was very specific. I mean, to the, to the, to the inch is what they were looking for. Even closer than that. And when they poured the foundation, they didn't just go, ah, let's dig a hole here. No, they measured and measured and measured. They surveyed the area and they made it precise so that it would be right. And my whole addition is within a quarter of an inch from corner to corner. It was pretty good. Not perfect. But when, when that song, I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Paul looked at the cross and he surveyed it. He took measurements. He examined the cost and he examined the, 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 the nature. And then he said, I am crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Have you surveyed the cross? If you claim to be a disciple, yet you haven't surveyed the cross, you are likely not a disciple. You might be a trailer. You might be a loose follower. But until you've surveyed the cross and taken on the cross and crucified yourself, you cannot be a real disciple. Here's what crucifixion was. Crucifixion was horrible. It was bloody. It was excruciating. That's where that word comes from. Out of the cross. Excruciate. It was, it was being crushed. It was being stretched where every ligament and every bone in your body was pulled to its furthest possible uh, uh, space inside without killing you. The whole purpose of crucifixion was to cause the most pain over the most amount of time, the most suffering that would end in death always. You never survive crucifixion. The moment you were condemned to die, you can count on a long, brutal, horrible couple of days to where every part of your body would scream for the release of death, but you would not get it because the Romans were masters at execution. Listen to what Paul says. I am crucified with Christ. When you are crucified, you lose all rights. This might be the most powerful thing I say today. When you are crucified, you lose all your rights to Rome. That means that the moment you are convicted and the moment they lay that cross on your back, the moment they walked you through the streets, the people of the city could do whatever they wanted. They could spit, they could yell, they could laugh, they could grab your beard and pull it out. They could gouge out your eyes. They could take sticks and beat you. Because as a condemned criminal who is crucified, you have no more rights. And listen to what Paul says at the end of his of his, of his letter to the Galatians in Galatians 6.14. He says, May I never boast. 
May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Never seen this before. There is a double crucifixion when you follow Jesus. You are crucified with Christ and you crucify the world. That means the world has no more rights to you. Has no more rights in you. That means you have no more rights in the world. I think one of our biggest problems today is that we're holding on to earthly rights when we have eternal rights that we should be thinking of. We're living with one hand in the world and one hand on God. As churches, we say, Lord, we want you to bless us. We want you to do great things. We want you to move mightily in our midst. But we don't want to let go of this. We want you to do great things and we want, you, we want to see great things. But only if you'll let us keep on with this. And God says, are you crucified or not? There's no such thing as halfway crucifixion, folks. Are you all awake? you all alive? This is it. Because when you're crucified, you have stepped off the ledge. When you, when you are crucified, you no longer can say, well, I just think... I mean, sure, you can say it, but in the grand scheme of eternity, what you think doesn't matter. Your individualism doesn't matter. How you feel doesn't matter. And this spits in the face of the culture in which we now live. We live in a culture that says, well, you can't do that. I'm a citizen. No, you're not. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, not of this earth. Here's, here's what's going on. Here's what Leonard Ravenhill saw back in the 50s. Here's what I see today. Here's what people uh, all over see. It's the church that is struggling between eternity and now. But we're so enamored with now because we haven't truly been crucified with Christ and we haven't crucified the world to us that we're trying to change eternal things with worldly things. Do you know how much excitement there was when, when, when there was a declaration? I don't know if you did it or not. I'm just saying generally. The Bible's now back in schools, right? There was some declaration somewhere. Woohoo! The Bible's back in schools. I don't want the Bible in schools. I want the Bible in the home. Do we need the school to change the world? No. Is it okay? Sure, it's okay, but, but you get the point. We're so intent on our, on, our, on our legislators fixing the problem. They're never going to fix the problem. They are the problem. Jesus will fix the problem. And it's not the Oval Office that is going to fix the problem. No matter who we have in the Oval Office, if the church isn't the church, we will never change the world. We want, we want government to do what's our job. Can I remind you that the church was birthed in a totalitarian, evil, corrupt government. In a fleshly, worldly system. Rome was as bad as it gets. They sent people into Colosseums and they watched the blood sport as they were torn apart by wild animals. And they cheered and they loved it. And we think the government 
is going to bring about the kingdom of God where there's hope and there's peace and there's love and there's, and, and, and there's selflessness? Are we crazy? Don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. That stuff has a place and it, there's an importance to it. But until we divorce ourselves from government and we marry ourselves through death to the cross of Christ Jesus, we shall not expect any real change in our country. In fact, that is what happened. We stopped trusting in God and we started trusting in legislatures. We stopped trusting in family. And we started trusting in society. We've handed over our responsibility. And we've given our responsibility to others and said, you do it. And then we wonder why it's broken. Paul said, I'm crucified and the world is crucified. Have you crucified the world to yourself? Have you died to the world? There should be such a strange mark on you and me that when we stand in the world, the world looks at us and goes, Huh? That's weird. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Who are you? I'm just a dead man who's alive in Christ Jesus. I'm just a man who gave up my rights for the one who owns all things. I'm just one who's traded a little bit of earth for an eternity of glory. It's a trade-off worth making. So, in all of Paul's letters, in all of his doings, in all of his life, his, his whole purpose was to glorify Jesus Christ in every breath, with, with, with every fiber of his body, with every step that he takes, with every movement of his fingers, with every, with every uh, 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 cell in his brain. He wasn't perfect. He told us, he said, look, I struggle with, 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 with doing what I want to do, but, but I'm crucified daily, over and over and over. I crucify myself and I crucify the world, and I'm alive to Jesus Christ. You know, our, our issue is that we want to crucify cautiously. This is our problem, if we're honest. We're like the lady who brought her, her dog to a friend and said, look at my dog. And the, the, the friend says, well, that, that dog really needs to have a, a, you need to cut the tail off because that dog's not supposed to have this long tail. I don't remember what breed it was, maybe Doberman or something. So you need to cut it off at the rump. She goes, oh, okay, I didn't know that. So she comes back a few months later and the dog has half a tail. And, and the friend says, oh, I don't understand. I, 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 I thought it was clear you got to cut off. Yeah, I know, but, but that seems cruel and mean. So I'm just taking off an inch every month. I mean, you know, I don't want to, I don't want just, but we do that with sin, don't we? We do that with the world, don't we? I, I don't want to, I don't want to jump in too much, you know. I want to, I, I want to ease into holiness. I want to ease into crucifixion. Don't you know that you cannot ease yourself into holiness and you cannot ease yourself into crucifixion? It's either you are or you aren't. Or as we say in the South, you either is or you isn't. 
That's it. Are you or are you not? See, we don't want crucifixion because we know what is involved with crucifixion. It didn't dawn on me till here actually just this morning that crucifixion being such a long process is, I think, the same process in our life when we are crucified with Christ and when we crucify the world. You don't... It's not like the electric chair. It's it's not like a a lethal injection. Not like a gunshot where those are just, you're alive, you're dead. Crucifixion is is a process of dying. And I think that that is the way it is in our life with the gospel. I think that we're in the process of dying. And and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we're cutting it off little by little. I'm saying that God is refining us and, and changing us. And His process is painful and it's long and it's ugly. You ask anybody in this room who has felt uh, uh, the, the, the hand of God and has changed them from who they were into who they are and they will testify to you that it was long and it was painful and it was ugly. And the ugly was because they found out they had a black heart. A despised heart. An ugly heart. And there were moments where we didn't want to, we, we, we didn't feel like we could even hang on. And we go, I, I just, I, I can't do this, God. I can't take any more. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. I am holding you in the palm of my hand. And if you let go, I won't. Because I'm extracting the world out. And I'm filling you with me. That's why in Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says, I could not address you as people of th- that live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, because we've not crucified ourselves or the world. He says you're still infants, you're still babes, and you wonder why you're powerless, and you wonder why you, you're confused, and you wonder why you're in chaos, and you wonder why you care so much about what people think, and you wonder why, and you wonder why, and you wonder why. It's because you're babies, because babies do that. You ever notice that a baby doesn't really live for anyone but himself? Can I ask you something? Are you okay being a baby in Christ? Are you satisfied with that? Because if you are, God apparently will let us live as babies. And we can, we can live and die as, as, as infants in Christ. But don't expect more out of life. Don't expect the power of the gospel. Don't expect the kind of stories that you hear other people tell. Don't expect for God to do stuff through you and with you and in you that you've read only read about. We want the power of the gospel, but we don't want the suffering that comes with the gospel. We want all of the power. We don't want any of the sacrifice. When I say we, I say that collectively. I'm sure somebody in this room, I hope somebody, I hope some of us do, but overall, have we been willing to die to, the, to die to the world and to crucify the world so that Jesus Christ can live in us.
As he says, he says, I gave you milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. He said, you're still worldly. Now, this is an interesting change because the, the, the Corinthian church was very secular. In fact, you didn't ever have to say, you didn't ever have to describe the Corinthian church. Like if you were talking with somebody and you were trying to describe how bad they were, all you would need to say was, oh, they're Corinthian, right? It, it, it's like this, oh, he's from New York, right? And you, you have a, an idea of what that might mean, right? Whether it's right or wrong, you have an idea. Or he's from the South, right? He's from California, right? I mean, so we have all these ideas. You just say the word, say the name, and we automatically attach a kind of person, whether right or wrong, that's what we do. Well, for the Corinthians, if you said, oh, he's a Corinthian, they knew that he was vile, he was uh, uh, engaged in all kinds of activities that were, that were, were sensual. I mean, just it was evident. But now, Paul came to Corinth after he was in Athens. Now, the Athenians had a different problem. The Athenians were, were smart people. Acts chapter 17 tells us this. The Athenians were people who liked to sit around and put their hands on their stomach, and they used to pontificate about what was going on in the world. They had theories, and they had, they had uh, 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 just ideas about gods and, and all of these things, and they never really solved anything. They just kind of talked. You ever know anybody like that? They just kind of talk. They don't really say anything. They just, if you're, ta- if you're thinking of me in your head, then <laughs> they, they just talk and talk and theorize. And Paul's walking through this city and his heart begins to break. Why? Because he's been crucified and the world has been crucified. And as he's looking, he's going, they don't see it. They don't get it. He realized he was a fish out of water, but he was only a fish out of water because he was crucified. Otherwise, he would have fit right in. And you notice that as he finally had enough, he, he, he got to where the, 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 the leaders were, and he got to the square, and he goes, Folks, you have a God you have a, an, a, 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 a figure and, and, and you, you call it a God and you say the, with the inscription, to the unknown God, well, today I want to reveal to you who you say is unknown. And he begins, he uses poetry and he uses all kinds of words and, and he speaks to them on a head level. But guess what? Because of their intelligence, they cannot see the simple truth of the gospel. That's a problem in today's church as well. We're so smart that we cannot, by faith, like a child, simply say, yes, Father. And so I see really two issues. One is the issue of the the Athenians. One is the issue of the Corinthians. We're too smart for our own good, and we're too worldly for our own good. If we could could kill our intellect for the sake of the gospel, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't be smart, and I'm not saying don't think deeply. I'm saying don't rely upon your own understanding to come to God. That's what I'm saying. And if we could kill the flesh, and if we could jump off the cliff into trusting that the old rugged cross is, has not lost its power. If you start preaching the old rugged cross, you are a strange person. You start speaking of the blood of Jesus. You are a freak. That's too graphic. But I will tell you that there is no other 
way by which we must be saved. There was a man who traveled. He was, he was a professor at Princeton, very highly regarded, wrote a book or two. He came down with some uh, dreadful disease. And through his research, he discovered that somebody in Switzerland had a cure. And it was a doctor to go to. So he, they didn't have planes back then. So he got on a boat and he traveled across the ocean. And he got to this doctor. And the doctor said, I'm sorry, but I, I don't think I can help you. But, but there's somebody in... In, in England, so go there. So he traveled to England and went to this doctor and the doctor said, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't think I can help you. Then he went to India, I'm sorry. I, and, and he went all over the world in search because they kept saying, I can't help you, but they can. And I can't help you, but they can. And finally he wound up back at his home. They're close to Princeton. And his body was breaking down even more with this dreadful disease and nobody had the answer. And he was walking down the street one day, and a a friend of his says, Hey, I'm glad you're back. I I noticed you have a limp. Are you okay? Are you sick? He said, Yes. Duh, right? I mean, look at me. Of course I'm sick. And the guy says, I know somebody can help you. He lives just around the corner. Go see him and tell him I sent you. Well, well, was he a doctor? No. Was Was he a scientist? No. Well, what is he? He's just an old man. So he thought to himself, I'm not going to waste my time. How foolish, but what do I have to lose? I've traveled all over the world, spent all my money, and I'm still the same way. And so he limps himself over to this house, and he knocks on the door, and this old man opens the door. Can I help you? And his first thought was to to run. Couldn't run, but his first thought was to turn and leave, because he's thinking, how are you going to help me? You you are uneducated. You you, you You are nobody. But he thought to himself, I have nothing to lose. I'll do whatever he tells me to do. He said, yes, I, I'm sick and I'm told that you can help me. He says, well, I, I'm no doctor, but come inside. So the man walks inside and says, what do you want me to do? He says, kneel down. So in the living room, the man kneels down. The professor kneels down. And do you know the kind of humility it would have taken for him to do that? He has sought all of the experts and nobody can help. And now this old man wants him to kneel before him. So he kneels down, and this old man takes his trembling hands and places them on his head, says a few words, and then says, And in the name of Jesus, be whole. And that professor jumped up like a thousand volts of energy run through him. And he says, What happened? And he starts to move, and he says, What did you do? And the old man says, I don't know. I just asked God. And the whole point of that story is this. We travel the world looking for answers. And the answer is right in front of us, in front of us, in the old, bloodied, rugged cross. One thing about Paul that you must know is that nobody owned him except for the gospel. He says, I believe it's in in, in, the... Uh, It's Galatians 6.17. He says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, they would have understood what he meant. See, when a slave was able to escape his slave owner, he would instantly run to the temple. And when he would get to the temple, he would say, Brand me! Mark me! And the priest or whoever was there would would say, Well, what, what God do you want? 
What instrument do you want? They would take a brand like a cattle iron. They would stick it into the fire, get it red hot. And then they would pull the cloak back and, and brand the mark on his, on his neck. Or they would lift their foot up and they would brand the mark on the foot. And they now belong to that God. What Paul was saying was this. I have been marked by Jesus. That means I am owned by Him. If I live... I live. If I die, I die. If I suffer, I suffer. If I eat, I eat. If I drink, I drink. If I sleep, I sleep. I don't care because I belong to Him and whatever He wants, I am His. Oh, that we would get to that place in our life. Perhaps this church has yet to see what God could do with one person fully consecrated and committed to Him. Perhaps if there were one, maybe two, maybe ten, who would say, I am crucified with Christ. And the world is crucified to me. From this moment on, nothing else matters. You can have it all. You know, that's a, that's a hard gospel. That's a hard gospel. But I want to remind you that in the short life that Keith Green lived, he influenced thousands upon hundreds of thousands. In the life that David Wilkerson lived, do you know his story? He moved to New York City. He was a pastor of a country church. And God said, move to New York City. So he moved to New York City. Now what? God said, go to the gangs. Go to the prostitutes. Go to the perverts. Preach the gospel. They dropped their switchblades. They left their uh, houses of prostitution. They came in as dirty and used and hopeless. And they left as children of God. Because David Wilkerson said, you know what? I can't live like this anymore. I am not okay just making a way. And you don't think that he had knives up to his throat, gang leaders saying, if you don't leave, I will kill you. And like Paul, kill me if you want. The only thing you could do is set me free from this body and send me into the presence of my Lord. It doesn't make no difference to me. We you close your eyes and bow your head for a moment? I don't know about you, but I want to be a man who is fully consecrated unto the Lord. I want to die to my intellect, die to skills, die to the world. And I want Jesus Christ to have every fiber of my body, every cell, every piece of DNA. Will you join me? In this room, if you're here tonight and you, you know Jesus, but you know you haven't crucified the flesh, 
between you and God, will you do that now? Wrap yourself in chains. Chains of the gospel. And let him have his way. You say, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. Don't worry about that part. God will do that. You might be here today and say, you know what? I really wish I wanted to, but I don't even want to. Your starting place is this. God, would you help me want to? I'll tell you this. Our church looks different when this happens. Our worship sounds different. Our preaching is different. Our conversation is different. Our habits are different. Everything changes. the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering Father in heaven only you only you God would you move in our midst Father would you bring tears to our heart with brokenness God would you allow us to say yes Lord Whatever you want. Let's stand together. Let's sing.